Well, good morning, my friends. Um, you know, the central part of our worship together is uh, the Word of God proclaimed, and so I want to invite you to gather around God's Word this morning. We find ourselves once again in the 18th chapter of Matthew. We, we've been in Matthew for a while. Um, and if you remember where our story is building, uh, we're in the city of Capernaum. We are in a house. Jesus has called a small child over to him so that he might illustrate to his disciples who were there in the house with him the childlike nature of Christians. And so the child is going to be with him through all of chapter 18, and he wants uh, his disciples to look at this child and, and see that something about this child is um, an illustration for the nature of Christians. He told his disciples to be humble like this child. He told them uh, to avoid making other people sin the way that you would think to avoid making a child stumble. He said that like this child, the people of God are important to him. And, and he kind of compares it. He, he goes, he tells the parable of the lost sheep in, in which, you know, if one of these little ones should wander, he would go and like the good shepherd would go after them. And I've got to tell you, that is a message that, that preaches who doesn't love that, that Jesus leaves the 99 and he goes and finds the lost sheep? But the very next thing that Jesus seems to deal with is this idea of how we're to treat our brothers when they wander. And not only does Jesus, as, as the good shepherd, go to the lost sheep, but he, he kind of seems to say that the, 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 the disciples and by nature us have a responsibility to those who are the lost sheep. And uh, specifically when, when they sin against us, and that was really where we were last week, is how to deal with uh, a Christian when they sin against us. It's, it's, it's our responsibility to go to someone who's sinning against us um, and, and to, to rest be restored to them. And so that's what we read about uh, last week. As we, we read about restoring our brothers. First off, we go one-on-one, -on -one, remember, and, and we tell our brother his fault. And if he listens, you have gained back your brother. And if he, if he doesn't listen, you go back and you take two or three witnesses. And if he doesn't listen, then you tell the church. And if he, do, and if he still doesn't listen, do you remember what he said to do then? He said, then he would be to you like a Gentile or a, a tax collector. And what Jesus is doing there is he's giving us a healthy process for church discipline. Where the main goal really is that the people are restored. Uh, the sheep is br brought back to the flock. The, the sheep is drawn near to the shepherd. Now the disciples are hearing all this, and a question begins to build in the mind of Peter as he's listening to all this. It, 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 he's, he's got one question in his mind. And I always, listen, I thank God for Peter because um, Peter always asks questions. And I, and I think like what, what truths of Scripture we might not have if it wasn't for Peter always asking his questions, right? Because we, we get to learn from Jesus' response to Peter's questions. Now, now, remember that the context here is how to gain, how to gain back a brother who is in sin. And uh, with that in mind, I want to read and hear Peter's question and, and kind of understand what he's talking about. We're going to be reading Matthew 18, 21 through 35. It is our tradition to stand in reverence of the Word of God read. So I would invite you now, if you're able to stand as, uh, as we read God's Word. Before we read, let's pray. Father... Thanks for your word. Uh, thanks for how you reveal yourself to us by it. Uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit, might we rightly understand it. Might you bring conviction and restoration in Jesus' name. And all the church said, amen. All right, friends, let's read together. Beginning in verse 21. Then Peter came up 
and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and, and children and all they had and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So this servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. And he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then the master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me? And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Church, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. And this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Peter's question after hearing about how to restore a brother in sin and the whole process of going one-on-one, -on -one, then taking two, and then, then taking him to the church is one about forgiveness. He wants to know, how often do we have to do this? Like, if a brother keeps sinning against me, do I have to keep for, forgiving him? Look what he says in verse 21. It says this, Then Peter came up and said to him, How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. It's a question of how many times do we have to forgive someone? It seems like a fair question in this context. How many times does the church forgive sinners? How many times do you forgive someone who sins against you? Now, in the Jewish tradition, I don't know if you recognize this, the answer to that question might shock you. According to the Jewish tradition at this time, many believed that the answer was three times. That the limit of forgiving someone was, was three times. And they, and they got this from a bunch of different places. But if you look at Job 3, or excuse me, 33, 28 through 30, look what it says there. It says this. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit, and my life shall look upon the light. Behold, God does all these things three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit, that he might be uh, lightened with the light of life. The Jews at this point, somebody had read this verse some rabbi, and they'd said to themselves, uh, apparently the forgiveness of God is limited to three times. Uh, and, and so on the fourth time, you're in big trouble. One rabbi said this, he who begs forgiveness from his neighbor 
must not do so more than three times. Another rabbi said it like this, if a, if a man commits an offense once, forgive him. If he commits an offense a second time, forgive him. If he commits an offense a third time, forgive him. If he commits an offense a fourth time, don't forgive him. So you have to, what, what you have to do is when you hear Peter's question about how many times we forgive, you have to understand that Peter thinks that he is being very, very generous with seven. Seven is like, is like doubling what the standard was and adding one for good measure, right? And, and, and look, what, look what Jesus says to him. Peter's probably proud. Jesus, what do you think about seven? Is seven a good time? You know? and, and look what Jesus says, verse 22, he says to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Um, we know this verse, don't we? Like most of us, this isn't new. Most of us know that the point isn't that there is an exact number to forgiveness. The point I think Jesus was, was making was he was going to give a number so big that it didn't make sense to count anymore. You're a strange bird if you have a ledger and you like count up how many times people sinned against you and you get to 77 and go, I'm done with you. Like you're a weird guy if you do that. The, the, the point is it's, it's too big to count, right? Where did this notion of only forgiving people three times come from? It came from a misunderstanding of the depths of God's forgiveness. Can you imagine, like, just think about it. If God only forgave you three times, I need God to forgive me three times a minute. Jesus is illustrating the depths of God's forgiveness. It's so much more than people understood, but that forgiveness is also the standard for God's people. And, and so Jesus is going to tell this parable, right? And, and once again, like many of the parables we've read in Matthew, it, it's about the kingdom of heaven. Look with me at verse 23. Let, let's get into this parable. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. This is the first time in Matthew's gospel that we see uh, Jesus, or excuse me, God the Father represented by a king, right? And, and you and I are, are represented in these servants, you know, right? And for some reason... The king wants to settle his accounts with his servants. So let me tell you what I think is happening in this story. Back in this time, it would make sense that kings would often put their servants in charge of parts of his kingdom, right? Like, like a regional governor who was given dominion to rule over part of the king's kingdom. I think that's what's happening here. I think that's why we get into such large amounts of money. And, and, and that person that works for the king would be responsible to steward the land in accordance with the king's standards. They would be responsible to make sure that they collected the king's taxes over that area in which they were given to steward. Um, in a sense, the king's servants were representatives of the king. They, they bore his name, they did his work, and they enjoyed his blessing, right? And this, really, if you think about this, illustration makes perfect sense for God's people. When God created man, he gave him dominion over all the earth. And we too, we became image bearers of the king. We were in charge to manage all that we've been entrusted with. And so this, this story makes good sense. And in this story, the king decides that it is time for an audit. I mean, can you imagine? Like, what if that was today? What if God decided to give you an audit this morning? You want to talk about terrifying? If anyone thinks that you would do well here when you get audited in life by God, it's simply because you don't understand God's standards, right? I mean, the fool 
thinks he is a good person until he stands before the righteous king and the glory of God starts to peel back all of his sin and his filth. And, and, and when, when that happens, you're, you're left to join with the prophet Isaiah who, who cries out like, woe am I for I'm an unclean man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. Look at verses 24 and 25. We'll keep reading. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment be made. Now, we need to talk money here. Um, a talent was a unit of financial measurement. And a talent, it, it's very large. It, it amounted to about 20 years of wages for a laborer. Can you imagine that? Like, I don't know that we have... Uh, a unit of measurement that large, that where, where it by itself is 20 years of wages for a laborer. Uh, you would have to have 20 years of work to, to earn one talent. And so the man owes the king 10,000 of those. And so I don't know if you're good at math, but if you take uh, 20 years for one talent and you multiply that times 10,000, you find that the debt of this man is 20,000 years of salary for an average worker. Excuse me. Let, let me restate that. 200,000 years of labor is what he would have to work to earn his debt. 200,000 years of work. Jesus is making a point, isn't he? What do you think the point is? The debt that we owe the king is huge. It's so huge, you could never pay it back. And I hope this isn't lost on you. You cannot pay back the debt of sin that you owe by good works. You only have one chance in this world to be free of your sin debt before God. Do you know what that is? It's forgiveness. That's the only hope you have to stand before God. And, and so in this story, Jesus wants to stress that there are consequences for our sin. The king orders that the man is to be sold, not only him, but also his wife and his kids and all that he had. Now, you know, sometimes we can come to a parable and we can make too much of every little detail and, and we can get stuck on things that aren't the point. I, I don't think we should be trying to make doctrine out of every detail of a parable. Don't, don't be looking for that part in judgment where God sells your wife and kids. I don't think that's the point. The point is there are consequences to sin. They are debts that you cannot pay. And one day you will stand before the king and be called to account. So, so what does the servant do? Ready? Verse 26, it says this. The servant falls on his knees and implores him, have patience with me. And I'm going to pay back everything. And, and I, think, I think it's a funny verse, right? Because there's no way this guy is going to pay back this. He can't. He's just begging. He's just trying to scramble. I'll, I'll just forgive me. I'll do the impossible. I'll, I'll pay it back somehow. All he can hope for is forgiveness. And looks what, look, look what happens when he asks for this forgiveness. Verse 27 says this. And out of pity for him, the king, the master of that servant, released him and he forgave the debt. And Jesus, is, he's telling the story of grace here, whether you recognize that or not. It, it, it's the story of, of the forgiveness of sin. And it, it's not, I wouldn't say it's the complete story. There, there are parts that we don't get. Maybe the part that we don't get is that it, it does not address what it costs God. 
Do you recognize that there was a price for our forgiveness? Uh, the, the, the cross of Jesus is, is the cost. Someone had to pay that sin debt. It didn't just go away. Someone had to earn the righteousness that was required of you and I to enter the kingdom of heaven, and it sure wasn't going to be us. The story today just doesn't go into those details. It simply just focuses on the forgiveness of the king. Now, look what happens to the man who's been forgiven, verses 28 and 20, uh, through 30. Excuse me, 28 through 30. It says this, but, but when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what I owe you. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you the debt. And he refused and went and he put him in prison until he should pay the debt. You know, you know the man, the king forgives, he goes out a new man. Can you imagine once you've been forgiven all that debt? I don't know if any of you have a story in your life where, where you owed a ton and you were forgiven and, and it just felt like a weight off your shoulders. That's what this man should be feeling. His debts are gone. He's free to live without that burden. And what does he do? He goes out and he finds a fellow servant who owes him a debt. And it says, it's so specific, it says he grabs the guy by the neck, begins choking the guy. And, and the fellow servant, he's begging for mercy, but this man refuses to give it to him. And he has him thrown in prison over, what, a, a hundred denarii? That's about three months worth of wages. It's not nothing, but it's also not 200,000 years of wages like he's just been forgiven. And this is really a masterful story. I mean, Jesus, if nothing else, he's a masterful storyteller. Because everyone who listens to this story recognizes the injustice it's like when the, the prophet Nathan went to go see Daniel, or excuse me, David, he was telling him about the man who only had one little sheep and, and, and someone took it. Everyone goes, oh, that's injustice, it's injustice. We can hear this story and recognize it's, there's injustice. Even the, even the people in the story recognize the injustice. Look at verse 31, it says this. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported it to their master, all that had taken place. And you know what's coming. Verse 32. The master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Now, Lest you not be picking up what Jesus is putting down, let me, let me cut through the story for you. Jesus is suggesting that you yourself, you yourself are the servant who was forgiven. Your debts were so huge that you were lost to them. And the consequences of your sin debt was death and hell. And for those of us who were born anew by the Holy Spirit, we were given the ability to believe in Jesus. We were given the ability to repent of our sin. We found ourselves able to ask for forgiveness, and then we found ourselves forgiven by God. We were no longer bound to the debt of our sins. The point is that Jesus is making is, what right now, what right do you have, what right do I have to not forgive other servants of the king, other Christians? Now, here's what I see. 
I see a process for lost sheep, right? Where, where we go to them and confront them when they sin to gain them back. And, and, and when they listen and repent, you are to always forgive them. How many times? 77 times infinity. Now, some of you who are good listeners, do you think you're a good listener? Some of you who are good listeners might be saying, but wait, are we only supposed to forgive people who repent? You ever think about that? Is it, is it conditional? And listen, that's not 100% clear to me. I want to ask it another way. Is, is our forgiveness to be conditional upon the repentance of others? What do you think? Are we called to forgive unconditionally? Well, well let, me, let me share my thoughts with you on this. If we were to go and we were to read the same section of Scripture, the, the parallel from Luke's gospel, right? We've been reading from Matthew. If we go to Luke's gospel and read the parallel, it's Luke 17, 3 through 4. Look at that part with me. He says this, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, he's talking about the process of church discipline again, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins again, uh, you must, uh, excuse me, and if he sins again you against you seven times in the day and, and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Do you see the inclusion of repent in there every time? Scripture calls the believer to have a forgiveness that's like God's, right? We are to forgive others as he has forgiven us. So, so here's our question. Is God's forgiveness conditional? Look at 1 John 1, 8 through 9. That's what it says. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I'll ask again, is God's forgiveness conditional? Yes, God's forgiveness is conditional. It's for those people who trust in Jesus and repent. And his people are called to mimic that same forgiveness. It if the, if the command for Christians was to forgive unconditionally, then it, it seems, everything seems to fall apart. Why do, we, why do we then treat the Christian brother who fails to repent like a Gentile or a tax collector? Because that was last week's teaching, right? Re- repentance is, is a valuable part of being restored. Look what R.C. Sproul says on the issue. He says, I do not see in Scripture a mandate to forgive people when they do not ask specifically for our pardon. God does not forgive us unilaterally without us asking for it. He demands that we repent and believe in Jesus. Therefore, it's hard for me to see a mandate in the New Testament that we forgive unilaterally if the person does not ask for our pardon. Very, very interesting line of discussion here this morning. But, but let me say this. Um, Bitterness is not only sinful, bitterness is, is toxic for your soul. There, and and there's, a, there's a thin line between not forgiving someone and becoming bitter. And, and you've got to guard against that kind of bitterness no matter what you believe. The issue at hand is a restored relationship, right? If, if, you, sin, if you sin against your brother... You should not be expected to be truly restored to your brother unless you truly repent to them. Repentance is 
is regret, and it's acknowledgement of your sin, and it it is a turning away from your sin. It's a hating of your sin. But here's what we can say about this text. I think this is probably the most important thing. God links his forgiveness of our sins with our forgiveness of the sins of others. And it's not just here, it's all throughout the scripture, guys. It's all throughout. In the Lord's Prayer, we're taught to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Ephesians 4, 32 says this, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against you, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. On, on the one hand, uh, a very positive way to, to, to state this is to say, you know what, it, it, we'll call this the, the carrot and the stick method, right? The, carrot, the very positive way to say this is that the reason we, we forgive is because we are so motivated by how much God has forgiven us. And if you can live that way, that is a beautiful way to live. If you can be aware of how much God's forgiven you and that motivates you to forgive other people, that's great. It's a a life void of entitlement. It was one that says, I deserve the punishment of the king, but he let me off the hook. Who am I not to forgive you? But some of us need what's behind door number two. Some of you are a lot like me, and you require the stick. And that requires a closer look at the end of this parable. Ready? Verse 32 through 34. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debts. What happens when the king observes that the servant does not forgive his fellow servants? The king's anger burns. And he delivers him to the jailers and I've got to tell you, that is a very interesting way to translate that word, if, if, you, if you know the word in the Greek. And I don't know if, if you guys have your, if you, you may have an ESV before you, and maybe it's footnoted there as to what the really meaning of that word is. Um, when, I, when I look at the true meaning of that word in the ESV, uh, excuse me, in the Greek there, it's not the word jailer, it's the word torturer. And that is an extreme and terrifying comment from Jesus. Lest we think that we're missing something and that I'm making some application that doesn't belong there, look what Jesus says in verse 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So what seems to be clear to me is this, that if you fail to offer forgiveness to your brother, Jesus says your heavenly Father will do the same thing to you that the king did in this story, which is to turn the servant over to the torturers. It sounds like to me that, that, that forgiveness is something that is, that is critical to God's understanding of justice. And like all the while when Jesus is telling the story, he's got this, this toddler there with him. You know Why? Jesus wants the disciples to see the childlike nature of believers. He wants the disciples to see how he loves his people like a father loves this little child. But he also wants to remind the disciples that believers are simply like little children. Believers make mistakes. They they mess up. 
And you know what's hard to hold a grudge against a little kid? We, we tend to forgive little kids pretty easily. Like, like kids do, do pretty rough things, and none of us are going to go like, I'll never forgive that toddler for what he did to me. It's not something that kind of rolls off of our tongue. But for adults, mm, it's different with them. There is something about this child that Jesus wants us to see. Like this child, believers are, are imperfect. Like this child, they're immature. They're still growing. They're still learning. And we have to see them in the same manner so that we can forgive them. So the question at hand today is about forgiveness. And the question I have for you this morning is this. Are you withholding your forgiveness from someone? Are you not motivated to forgive by God's forgiveness of your sin? If you could look at your story from the outside, would you not see the injustice that the servant saw in this story? If our God has forgiven you, but you're withholding it from someone else, what do you think awaits the Christian who hopes in the promises of God's forgiveness and yet fails to forgive his brother? Show me the man who forgives, and I'll show you a man of character. Show me a man who clings to his anger, and I'll show you a man without character. Forgiveness is a divine commandment upon God's people. And, and, and I can't think of anywhere else in all of Scripture where a more terrifying consequence is leveled than what, what Jesus says here, that the king will turn over the servant to the torturers. This story has, has the carrot and the story has the stick. The carrot is the beauty of God's forgiveness, which invites us to forgive those who sin against us. The stick is the anger and wrath of the king when we refuse to forgive others. I'll leave you with this. Be very weary about refusing to forgive. It's not the way of Christ. It's not the way of his people. It's not the nature of the Father. It's bad for the soul and the general well-being. And it, car it carries with it terrifying consequences. Be a people of forgiveness. We have been the church gathered around the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word on forgiveness. We, we really find uh, our motivation, Lord, first in your forgiveness of us. And we, we can't really grasp it until we recognize the depth of our sins, how wicked they are. How, how, how what we owe was more than we could ever muster. But once we recognize that, God, our motivation to forgive should be great. But for many of us, it's still not. And so for those of us who require the stick, the end of the story, may we be terrified into forgiveness of those who repent to us. We pray this in Jesus' name and all the church said, amen. <laughs>